0: Hello, I'm Anastasia Uglova, your host for today's Cato Daily Podcast. It is Tuesday, February 13th. For today's episode, I cover the topic of this month's debate at Cato Unbound, our online monthly magazine. Gary Burtless and Mark Toma have already contributed their essays to the debate on income inequality, to be followed by Richard Berkhauser, Dick Kruger, and Fabrizio Perry. Cato senior fellow Alan Reynolds, who authored the lead essay on the topic, discusses his controversial conclusions about income inequality on our podcast today. Ben Bernanke has stated that although average economic well-being has increased considerably over time, the degree of inequality in economic outcomes has increased as well. How is he wrong?
1: Notice he said that it's happened for 30 years at least, and he starts off with 1979. He's right about the period from 79, 80, 81, on to about sometime between 86 and 88, but not since then. In other words, if you take two years, like 79 and 2004, and draw an imaginary line between them, you see a 25, 30-year increase. In point of fact, that increase happened in the first eight and hasn't happened since. To me, that's a kind of a major distinction. We like to know what happened when.
0: So what are the big issues here in your essay on Cato Unbound?
1: The Cato Unbound essay, I mean, I start with a book called Income and Wealth, and I wrote a couple of Wall Street Journal articles, and I tried to summarize that very quickly and some of that stuff in the Cato Unbound piece. First off, I spent a whole chapter of the book saying you cannot use income tax data to estimate income distribution. That's true of the study by Piketty and Saez. That's true of the Congressional Budget Office. Those were two Wall Street Journal articles in their own right. And then I go on to say if you don't use the tax data— Most of the other data shows no increase in the inequality of income or consumption or wages, that one's a little trickier, or wealth since about 1988 that is significant and sustained. We had a little boom with the stock market, but nothing that's been significant and sustained. And this is the part everybody's focusing on. What I wanted to focus on was my criticism of the tax data, which is unique.
0: Well, let's talk about exactly why tax data can't be used.
1: Well, the two studies are often used interchangeably. Piketty and Saez, a couple of French economists, did this long historical study, and it's quite different from that of the Congressional Budget Office. It has a very narrow conception of income, which I think is advantageous. They leave out capital gains, for example, but they also leave out things like Social Security. Remember, when you're talking about the ratio of top 1% to everyone— if you're understating everyone's income, you're going to make the top 1% look like they have a big share. So all I did with that is say that if you measure income properly, the top 1% share isn't 16%, it's closer to 10. And that's because they're leaving out a third of income, notably transfer payments, the fact that people don't report all their income on tax returns, some don't have to, some don't tell the truth. So it's a bad measure of income. That's part of the problem. The other is the big increase in the top 1% share or 5% share. It all happened in a couple of years, right after the tax reform of 1986, suddenly shoots up. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is people report more income when tax rates are lower. That's called the elasticity of taxable income. But also when relative tax rates shift, they report it in different ways. In this case, they used to report it on corporate tax. Now they report individual tax, shows up as a big increase in individual income. It's just showing up in a different form.
0: Piketty and Saez wrote a response to your original op-ed, the one titled, The Top 1% of What? What did they disagree with you about?
1: Well, I haven't bothered to answer that yet in detail, but I will. Uh, Basically, what they did not say is what's most telling. They did not say I misquoted them, and I quoted them making every point I made. For example, last history of taxable income, Saez has estimates that are quite high. Now he says somebody else is right and I'm wrong. I don't get it. And about the surge in in the reported share in 86 to 88, he's quite clear about that. Now they deny it. So that just boggles my mind. I would have thought they would have come back by saying, well, we've been misinterpreted, but they missed that opportunity. They do not suggest my numbers are wrong. They don't say that I miscalculated any of the numbers. They just quibble about some rather technical points, which are fairly easy to answer. And interestingly, in the published version, in the Wall Street Journal, January 11, they left out a key point about the fact that a lot of middle class savings is now sheltered in, therefore the capital gains and dividends and so on is no longer showing up on tax returns. They kind of brushed that away, but they took it out of their answer and I think I know why. Because they think I may be onto to something there.
0: Well, let's walk through this methodology that you use now. Why are your figures contrasted with, say, Pigory and Sayas and the CBO study to be trusted?
1: Well, nothing should be on trust, and I think the thing that offends me most about this is people keep saying, well, Mr. So-and-so, Ben Bernanke thinks you're wrong, and -and so-and-so. Look, logic and evidence is what prevails, and I show you my numbers and tell you how I got there, and in the case of the book, I have earls; You can check them all out. If I've made a mistake, you can catch me on it. I do sometimes. With the Congressional Budget Office, I'm making a pretty serious point, which is that they are assigning a huge and rising share of corporate profits to the top 1% of taxpayers – and they do so by a method that is simply indefensible, in my judgment. We know what the top one's percent share of wealth is, from a number of studies. It's somewhere in the range of twenty-two to thirty-two percent, and hasn't changed for ten years or so. But here, the CBO says it's fifty-nine. It was thirty-seven percent a couple decades ago, and now it's fifty-nine. That's just huge, and it just piles uh, you know half a million dollars on every top one percent taxpayer. Grossly exaggerates the top one percent share, and yet even so. Their after-tax share was the same between 1988, the year I gave you, and 2003. It jumped up a little in 2004. So if you were to take that error out, my contention is it would go down quite a lot. Top 1% share would go down, not up.
0: What was the reasoning behind including corporate taxes in the CBO study?
1: They were mandated not to estimate the distribution of income, which they do very badly, but to estimate the distribution of taxes. There's no good way to do that. I'm sure they give it a good try. But in order to say what share of the corporate tax, you have to have a theory about who pays the corporate tax. Their theory is it's all paid by owners of capital. Some people think it's shifted to workers or consumers. I'm not going to argue with the theory. I'm just arguing with their numbers. Their numbers are uh, not usable for this purpose. They may be usable for some other purpose.
0: Now, Bertliss wrote a response to your essay on Cato Unbound. What were his contentions?
1: Well, once again, uh, it didn't particularly deal with any of the criticisms of the tax data. He said, I was underestimating. I I needed a a more balanced approach to the problems with other data, data from the Census Bureau and the Consumer Expenditure Survey, which is Bureau of Labor Statistics. I would add the Fed's uh, Survey of Consumer Finances is another one. I deal with all of them in the book, but that isn't the focus of my work. I don't think you can deal in an even handed manner with all the data sources before you've revealed the faults with the tax base sources. And that's my unique contribution. My other unique contribution is to use the survey of consumer finances to show that the gains to the top 10% from 1989 to 2004 in real median income were about the same as they were for the bottom 20 or bottom 40%. I think that's interesting. No one's questioned that number either. Bertless says that I'm understating the problems with the Consumer Expenditure Survey and that it is now missing something like 60% of what consumers spend, and he uses the personal consumption expenditure from the national income accounts, what we call you know GDP. Big problems with that. Biggest problem is the data really aren't comparable. There is a, a very fine paper on this in the Monthly Labor Review last September by five BLS economists. They say that it captures about 81%, not 60% and the the reason to get it down to 60 61% is by including things you just can't include. For example, in the PCE, they include the food and clothing of the soldiers in Iraq. They include Medicare and Medicaid. They include research grants. They include nonprofit expenditures for schooling, such as scholarships. It's not a measure of what consumers spend. It's a measure of things that consumers and governments and nonprofit institutions spend on behalf of consumers. So if the Salvation Army buys food, then that's considered a consumer expenditure. It's a highly different series. So. If you want to ask why the gap has grown, the the shortest answer is Medicare and Medicaid.
0: And what does Mark Thoma add to the debate?
1: Oh, um, that's (laughs) that'll be I'm going to have fun with that. But Mark, I think, just changes the subject every chance he gets when it comes to the Gini coefficients for income and for consumption. He uh, talks about Gini coefficients for wealth. Well, it wasn't my topic. I've talked about the top 1% share of wealth, which has been fairly constant, and like I said, 30, 32%, something like that. But that's just changing the subject. Then he talks about my CBO essay, and he says that it's about the distribution of interest earnings. No, it's about the distribution of corporate profits a whole entirely different topic. And, and I think he might just have misunderstood that. But, you know, it was written with David Henderson. Neither one of us have a reputation for being un- unclear. So I think if you'll read it again carefully, he'll see that that's not what I'm talking about. He makes a big deal out of top coding. Top coding is a phrase that came up on his blog because Paul Krugman had written something about it which was misleading. And the bloggers thought I would written about it and thought it was terrible. Then they found out Krugman wrote it. And all of a sudden, it became marvelous and wonderful. Krugman's reply on that is to, again, change the subject. I'm talking about a huge gap in the amount of income attributed to the top 5% by census and by Piketty and Saez. Piketty and Saez is more than 10 points higher. That is to say, they say there's 10 percentage points more income in the top 5% than census finds, And this gap has grown enormously by eight or nine points since 86, let's say. And so he comes around and talks about just the change since 94 and not the level at all. doesn't even show you the level or mention it. It, It's the gap that needs to be explained. And if you were to take out all of the income from $5 million up out of the Piketty saws number, the gap is still nine percentage points. It's more than nine percentage points. So it needs to be explained. I can explain it, but I think other people are just changing the subject.
0: The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.